let's keep hiding God's word in our hearts. Um, with his help, we'll add verses 4 to 8, which we will consider now in the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us mental capacity to know you, to know your word. In that way, Lord, we are unlike any of the rest of creation. Uh, Lord, you've given us souls that we might commune with you, that we might be with you forever and know you and love you with all our hearts and all our minds and all our strength. And you've given us your word, this pure word, this imperishable seed, this pure spiritual milk, that, that by it we might grow and, and by it, Lord, we might know the good news of your salvation. And by it, O oh Lord, our, our very souls might be purified. We might be born again. And so we pray, bless this word to our souls this morning. Strengthen us. Give some person made in your image the new birth, we pray this morning, the miracle of a new life with Jesus Christ. And those who trust and know you, O oh Lord, uh, let, us, let us feed upon your word now. Let us drink this pure spiritual milk and so grow into the salvation that you have provided. Uh, bless us, O oh Lord, this morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're at a dinner party. You've maybe gone there with a friend. You're the plus one. You don't know a lot of people at the dinner party. They're mingling before dinner actually happens. And your friend does that really abominable thing of leaving you over there by yourself while they go talk to other people, right? You got this party, you don't know people. Maybe you're, you're holy, you're an introvert like me. Like holy and introvert go together, right? So maybe you're an introvert like me. And, and you're just, you'd rather find a corner that's where you can be out of the way and watch people, et cetera. But somebody comes up to you and says, so who are you? How do you answer? Probably with your name. Oh, I'm Thabiti. I'm with Christy. She always leaves me at these things. <laughs> right? That's how the conversation goes for me, right? The next question is, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Which, I got to tell you, at dinner parties... It is a buzzkill, right? <laughs> it's just, you know, dinner parties and weddings, you guys invite the pastor, and you, you put us at the table with, 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 with Uncle Bubba and them, and, and you want us to share the gospel with them. But Uncle Bubba and them, there to celebrate, right? And so they, they loud, and they talking, and say, hey, man, what you do? You say, I, I'm a pastor. Table goes quiet. <laughs> Uncle Bubba put the bottle back in his jacket. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a buzzkill, but it's all right. And you say, you, you answer, I'm a pastor, I'm, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and then there's small talk, right? And people talk, oh, you like that? And da 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 and they sort of go on. Let me ask you this question. How many of you leave interactions like that feeling like you're known? And how many of us leave interactions like that feeling like we've said anything that's really meaningful about ourselves? Say our name our job, maybe something about our families. We share those things, and that's great. But I wonder how often we spend hours with people and leave their company not knowing them and not being known. 
I will suggest to you that part of why that's true is the ways in which we understand ourselves, our identity and our purpose, and the ways in which we talk about ourselves are superficial. Either because we don't want to risk it or because it's not really seen as polite or because the person really doesn't look all that interested, we often don't say the most meaningful things about ourselves. And so people don't know us. And we don't know them. Even if we've had time together, sometimes years together. You ever had the experience of having known someone for a really long time and then you have this sort of interaction with them and you go, I didn't know you at all. Where was that? It was always there. We just never discovered it, did we? One of the things I'm learning as I study 1 Peter and as we walk through it as a church, one of the things I'm really appreciating about this letter is how much work Peter does on Christian identity, who we really are, and Christian purpose, what's really most meaningful about who we are and what we do, and the relationship between those things, our identity and our activity. And in our text this morning, verses 4 to 8, Peter is still doing that. He's still working to help these Christians spread throughout Asia, understand something deeper about who they are, and understand something deeper about their purpose, so that we walk properly in our identity and walk properly in our purpose this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 4 to 8. And my outline is three parts. If you're taking notes, um, very simply, it's this. We want to see the purpose of the church in verses 4 to 5. We want to see the predictions of Scripture in verses 6 to 8. And then we want to consider the problem of disobedience at the end of verse 8. The purpose of the church, the predictions of Scripture, the problem of disobedience. And the main point here is that we should come to Jesus in faith and become a part of God's holy priesthood. That's the encouragement for us this morning. How we would come to Jesus in faith, and either for the first time or as we continue the Christian life, become a part of God's holy priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you, let's start at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The purpose of the church, verses 4 and 5. When the Christian church engages or interacts with a hostile world, few things are more important than remembering who Jesus is and remembering what the church is. Verse 4 reminds us of elect exiles that we are to come to him. 
And in this reminder, in his exhortation, it's also reminding us of who Jesus is. So there the text says, as you come to him, which means as you fellowship with and as you follow Jesus. When you think about the whole of this paragraph, perhaps what Peter has in mind is the Old Testament priesthood and how the Old Testament priests had to approach God in the, in the sacrifices of the Old Testament system. The priests had to be holy. They had to be consecrated themselves, had to be ceremonially clean. And then they had to perform certain rituals, certain rites in a prescribed way in order to come into the presence of God. But the Christian is a little different. If you're a Christian this morning, you began to come to Jesus the moment that you repented of sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you began to come to him as a lifestyle. Right, of, of always sort of living with him, of being with him, not with special rules and sacrifices. Now we come to Jesus all the time and any time because Jesus has become our holiness. He has made us holy so that we can always come to him and be with him. What does that look like to come to Jesus? Well, I think we can say that it looks like a, lumber, a lot of things, but just to take a, a couple of bullet points from 1 Peter, what he said all, already so far, just think about those references to us as children. Back in verse 14 of chapter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. We come to him like children, and we come to him holy and all of our conduct. We come to him putting away the, the old passions, the old desires, those things that are part of our ignorance before we knew God. And we come to him now clean and holy like little children. Or in verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, fear there is not like shaking, trembling, craving fear. It's another word for respect. Come to him with a, a reverence for him as your father, the way little children do their, their fathers, and, and live now as exiles in that reverence. Or chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up to salva the salvation. In other words, coming to Jesus is not about learning a lot of theology, though theology is important. And coming to Jesus is not about following a bunch of rituals and rules, although there are commands in New Testament Christianity. Coming to Jesus is about being with Jesus. It's about enjoying his presence. It's about what verse 3 says, tasting that he is good, seeing that he is good. So to be a Christian is to have this living, breathing relationship with a living breathing Savior. Being a Christian, coming to him is another way of saying walking with him by faith in fellowship. Now, coming to Jesus involves also choosing Jesus. Again, not just when we first became Christians, but every day. How many of us know every day we got to pick up our cross and die to ourselves and follow him? Every day there's a choosing that happens, a renewing of our vows, as it were, with our Lord. And Peter wants us to understand that we, we need to be choosing the real Jesus, 
Not, not the counterfeit Jesuses that are out there. He explains that the real Jesus, notice there, was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The real Jesus was rejected and despised. And guess why? Because men loved darkness and because their deeds were evil. This is what Jesus himself said as the explanation John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. You can turn there with me or write this down. Jesus is there speaking, and he is probably just given the verse that almost all of us know from the time that we're children, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he, what, gave his only begotten son that, what, whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, if that's all you've learned, you might think he stopped talking, but he didn't. He kept talking, and by the time he came to verses 19 and 20, this is what he says. He says, and this is the judgment. The light, referring to himself, has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone, verse 20, who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And he says, uh, I, I know I'm going to be rejected. I know I'm going to be hated. And I'm going to be hated because people love the dirt they do rather than the light I bring. And, and they don't want to come to the light because they don't want the dirt exposed. He said, that's the whole problem with man. Man actually loves evil. They love darkness, and they can't stand the light because it exposes their love for the darkness. And Jesus stayed on that, man. Just read the Gospels. So just John chapter 7, verse 7. Just flip over a couple of chapters there, and he's talking, and he says this. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. <laughs> you see what the Lord said? The Lord said, listen, the whole problem that the world has with me is I tell them the truth about themselves. I, I tell them the truth about evil deeds. I tell them the truth about sin. I point out unrighteousness. This is why they don't rock with me. This is why they don't want to hang with me. This is why they don't want to come to me. I know they give you these fancy questions about the Trinity and how can I be both God and man. I know they raise all these questions about, okay, now you can eat shrimp, but they couldn't eat it in the Old Testament. I know they'd they be squirming with answers and questions and objections, but at the bottom, you know what's really real? They know I'm holy and they're not. They don't want to they won't rock with me because their deeds are evil and they love their deeds. This is why Jesus is rejected, why he was rejected on earth and why he is rejected now at the very bottom. Jesus never won any popularity contest. He never entered any. Even in the world he created, he was not accepted. So if your Jesus is a Jesus that's loved by the world of men and women who don't even believe in him, then you have the wrong Jesus. And, and if your Jesus never tells you about the, the ratchet, jacked up stuff that's in your life, and he never confronts anybody else about their sin and their darkness, beloved, that's a false Jesus. The sinful world rejects him. But now notice... The real Jesus, rejected by men, was chosen and precious to the one who matters, to God the Father. 
The Father would sometimes speak from heaven and the Gospels would say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father chose the Son to be our Savior by dying on the cross for our sins and His sacrifice pleased the Father. And the Father showed His love for Him by raising Him from the grave three days later and exalting Him to His right hand. So now coming to Jesus means choosing and loving this Jesus even though the world hates him. We cannot follow Jesus without being rejected the way he was. And there are a lot of Christians who need to give up on the vain delusion of being cool and popular in the world. Because if they rejected Jesus and you really follow him, They will reject you too. You can't have it both ways. This is important. If you're here and you're a high school student and you believe in Jesus or you're a college student and you believe in Jesus, I guarantee you, you're going to be around a lot of folks who don't and and who will seem to make it their goal of making your faith ridiculous. And there'll be the temptation to you of, of not associating with Jesus, not speaking for Jesus, not letting people know that you're a Christian, uh, all because you kind of want to be accepted by the crowd. I want you to understand that's not acceptance, beloved. That's the fear of man. It's another sin, and it, it will enslave you, right? You will be enslaved by the preferences of those people to whom you are looking to be popular or accepted. And All of it will be burst like a bubble the moment you take sides with Jesus. Save yourself some time. Save yourself some heartache. Save yourself some confusion. Go ahead and stand up for Jesus now. Make it really clear. Draw your line in the sand and say, I'm on the Lord's side with everybody else on the Lord's side. Choose you this day whom you will serve. But for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So you're a high school student, college student, adult, grown, rusty adult. We got to make this choice too, right? We, we can't be in our businesses. We can't be in our companies looking to sort of make advancement in our careers and cutting corners and sacrificing and, and denying Christ in order that we might have the approval of men who reject him. That temptation doesn't go away just because you aged out of high school. So we too have to be drawing the line and making it clear, I'm choosing Jesus and I'm choosing the Jesus way. I, you know, I know what the cost of that is. They rejected him, they'll reject me also. They persecuted him, they'll persecute me also. But great is the reward for everyone who endures that persecution. It's worth it, beloved. It's worth it. But we got to be clear about this. Christ and the world just don't mingle. They don't fellowship that way. This is what Jesus said. Mark chapter 8, verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. See, he just, Jesus just never kept it a secret how he thought about the world, right? I mean, just, it's plain. It's like in this adulterous and sinful generation. If you're ashamed of me in front of this generation, Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you're ashamed of me now, in front of 
people? I'm going to be ashamed of you then in front of God. That's a bad trade, beloved. That's a bad trade. And so the, t- the scripture testifies, choose you this day who you will serve, whether the people who reject Jesus or the real Jesus and the God who loves him. And it's only when we get that right that we then sort of move into understanding verse 5, which gives us the church's purpose. Notice what happens to us as we come to him in verse 4. We come to him in verse 4, then verse 5 says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter here's a little bit like a rapper. He's got all these mixed metaphors in this sentence, right? He first says, Jesus is the living stone. And he says, now the consequence of coming to him, the living stone, is you become like him. You yourselves also become living stones. In fact, you get joined together with other living stones. He's talking about the church now. He's talking about other believers. You get joined together into a spiritual house, into a temple. Paul taught the same thing in several places. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19, chapter 6, verse 16, Ephesians 2, verses 20 and 22. In 1 Corinthians, he asked this question twice. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, um, in whom he lives by his Spirit? He says that both in the plural and the singular. He's saying, hey, you, individual Christian, you are the temple of God. He lives in you by his spirit. And he's saying to the whole church, hey, you, all of you together are the temple of God in whom he inhabits by his spirit. Peter is giving us the same idea here. You have become living stones, joined together, stacked together, made into a temple in which God lives. So we are. Hebrews 3.6 says, We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting in our hope. If you're a believer, continuing in faith, you're God's house. You're the one in whom he lives. Not a temple made with stone, but living temple made out of redeemed people. And not only, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 5, not only are we the true temple, but we at the same time the true priests. So I mean sort of mixed images, right? We're both the building and the priests operating in the building, right? So we're also the, the true priesthood. Peter says we are a holy priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the only people who could be priests were descendants of Levi, the Levites. God set that whole tribe aside and gave them that job of, of ministering before him, making sacrifices in the temple, killing bulls and goats and sprinkling the blood on the various parts of the, of the temple and the altar in order to make atonement for those who came to worship. Peter's taking that very language and that very image, and he's picking it up off of Israel and up off of the Levites, and he's putting it on the church. He's saying, that's who you really are the true priesthood, right, that ministers to God. And so it's what some theologians have called the the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. But instead of offering the blood of bulls and goats, we have the once and for all perfect sacrifice 
of the Son of God to atone for our sins. And so now we don't offer animals to God. Peter says here we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But what are those spiritual sacrifices? When we look up that phrase and phrases close to it throughout the scripture, we get several things. I want to give you a few of them as we, as we walk here. You can write down these verses or you can turn there with me, have a little sword drill with me if you want to. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. One of the spiritual sacrifices we offer is prayer. Notice what Isaiah says there. He's talking about a people that he will gather and make his people. He says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's what we are. That's one of the spiritual sacrifices that we offer is prayer. Or Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You guys will know this, this very well. Paul says there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, the presentation of our bodies and the sanctification of our bodies for use by God is one of our spiritual sacrifices. It's our spiritual worship. What we do with our bodies, every Christian, is a spiritual sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. We'll pick up three things in, this, in these two verses. Praise, good works, and sharing. Praise, good works, and sharing. All are spiritual sacrifices offered to God through Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says this. Through him, meaning Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, he explains what he means, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's, that's a spiritual sacrifice. Lips that acknowledge his name, that praise him. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good, so good works, and to share what you have, sharing, fellowship, communion. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is, Peter has given us our identity and our purpose. We are a spiritual temple for God, and we are God's holy priests offering to him spiritual sacrifices like prayer and praise and good works and sharing every member. So if I'm applying this, I'd give you three real quick applications. Number one, Every one of you who is a Christian is a priest. Do you think of yourself that way? See, here's what I notice. Most Christians real quick are like, I ain't called to the ministry. No, I ain't called to that pastor. Children's ministry? No, 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 I ain't called to that. Right? And so we, we hide out behind a kind of spirit the knowledge of a special call, we, we hide out from our entire call, right? So just because you don't feel called to be a pastor or feel called to be a deaconess or hold some office in the church doesn't mean you're not called to be a priest. We're all priests. 
And the question is, do we regard ourselves that way? When you're at the dinner party and somebody asks you who you are or what you do, do you say, I'm a priest of God. I make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Do that next time. Do that next time. Then you'll know how his pastors feel, right? Now, in other words, is, is this sort of like the deep organizing, structuring identity that we have as Christians? Or, or am I just the beady who happens to be a Christian? It's a difference. Right? How deeply a part of our identity is our priesthood? Second application real quick. And it's just what I've already said. So every member in this church, every Christian in the world has the ministry of at least those four or five things. Presenting our bodies to God as a sacrifice. Prayer, the sacrifice of of our lips. Prayer and praise. Doing good works. And sharing with one another. Right? So, we should never hear someone at ARC say, I don't have a ministry. I know what we mean by that sometimes. Like, we don't, we're not a part of a formal ministry, or we don't feel like we have this unique thing that we do that contributes to the life of the church. And, and those, that's good. That's good to have. And, and praise the Lord for people who feel that way. But, but we should never speak so generally as to say, I don't have a ministry at, 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 at ARC or in any church because that's false. You have a vital ministry. The body can't grow and be healthy as it ought to be, according to 1 Corinthians 12, unless you actually perform your ministry. Unless you're an active part, a healthy part, joined to the body, doing the every member ministry that we all have of praying and sharing and, and all the things we've just been looking at, Right? That's vital. Never say again, I don't have a ministry. Yes, you do. You are a priest and you are called to make spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So do you pray? That's ministry, beloved. Do you you praise God with your lips? That's ministry. I know you do because I see some of you driving out of the parking lot. You put your hand and you be banging. I know you praise the Lord. That's ministry. Do you share with other believers? This is one of the most sharing churches I think I've ever been a part of. I know you do. You keep your body holy. I know you do. I trust you do. Then you have a ministry, and it's vitally important to who we are as a church. In other words, beloved, hear me, each of you, each of you who are Christ. You count. You count. You matter. You're important to God, and you're important to us. You are ministers together with us, priests together with us, serving God. Don't, don't, let, don't let the enemy or the world or even your own thoughts tempt you to think otherwise. You count, beloved. You matter. Which brings us to the final point. And by the way, this is the longest point. 
Number three, or final application of the longest point. Number three, we do these things because this is who we are and not just because we like these activities. Right? So identity produces activity. The activity flows out of the identity. You are a priesthood, and priests minister this way. Sometimes I think we get ourselves in trouble because we start thinking about the activities of the Christian life and which ones we like, which ones we enjoy, how we like it over here, or how we like it over there, or, or whatever the case might be, right? And then, then we, we, we suddenly stop thinking about the fact that we are priests, it, it grows out of our identity, and we start organizing our Christian lives around our preferences. And then our preferences, if unchecked and unexamined by the Scripture, if not brought back in line with our identity, our preferences can lead us astray. Can lead us astray. Some of you know the name Arthur W. Pink. Arthur Pink was a theologian in the early to mid-1900s. Uh, it was a big part of the prophecy conferences that grew up around that time and uh, a, a prodigious writer. Um, I have benefited from some of his books, etc. Arthur Pink, though, and his wife died alone in a small house in the north of Scotland because his life was a series of choices made and associations made around his preferences theologically. I'm going to tell you, the more peculiar you get in your preferences about things, the more attached you get to your preferences about things, the smaller your world becomes. There are Christians who feel like they can't worship with anybody but themselves and their families because they feel like they're the only ones who do it right. Be careful of that. You are a living stone cemented together with other living stones to form a temple. You are a priesthood together with other priests to serve God in the offering of spiritual sacrifices. Get that right in our identity and then embrace the activities that reflect that identity. You tracking with me? This is the purpose of the church. Number two, more quickly, the prediction of Scripture. Peter builds his case on the Old Testament Scripture in verses 6 to 8. Peter refers to three passages. In verse 6, he refers to Isaiah 28, 16. You see it there? Um, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's the Bob Marley verse of the Bible. Dag, no Bob Marley fans? Dag, just me and you, Jasmine? All right, we'll talk later. And then in, in verse 8, he quotes from Isaiah 8, 14. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which we read earlier in the service. So now... He's taken together three passages, two of which are predicting judgment, verse 6 and verse 8, and one of which, sandwiched in the middle, is predicting salvation. 
Psalm 118 is a celebration of God's salvation. Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8 are passages prophesying judgment against Israel for their unfaithfulness and against their sinful leaders. Taken together, the scripture is predicting a time when God's presence and God's righteousness would be a source of faith for some and a source of stumbling to unbelief for others. This is the thing about God. And sinful men wish it was otherwise. But this is the thing about God. Just his presence divides. It divides the righteous from the unrighteous. It makes clear the difference between goodness and evil, wickedness and holiness. And so these scriptures are predicting a time when Jesus comes onto the scene and being who he is, the Son of God, being holy, being infinite in majesty, being infinitely pure, just his presence is going to be either a stumbling block for some or it's going to be the cause of celebration for salvation for others. Notice, notice the scripture predicted and promised that those who believe, verse 6, at the end of verse 6, will not be put to shame. And when the Bible describes the emotion of God's judgment, what people feel when the judgment of God comes upon them, it often reaches for the word shame. Those who reject God will be overwhelmed by this deep embarrassment from their wrongdoing and their folly, their foolishness. Shame is another word for disgrace. They're going to feel a sense of disgrace before God. But what's promised here to the believer is that those who believe will not be put to shame. In other words, they will be accepted and welcomed by God. Their souls free of embarrassment and shame and guilt. They'll not be judged and turned away from God's presence. They'll be welcomed. God will not cast them away. God will always hold fast to them. So we think of Psalm 25, verses 1 to 3. Well, the psalmist says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. And then he resolves this way. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. You see the promise to those who believe? Not one of you who have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will ever be put to shame before God. Not for a moment, not for a millisecond. When Christ cracks the sky and gathers his bride, his bride won't be blushing in embarrassment. His bride will be blushing in his glory. (laughs) Nothing that the enemy whispers to you about will God look at and go, Nothing that that besets you and entangles you and and causes you to be downcast and makes you to fight with your own soul to hope in God. None of those things, when Christ appears, having already died for those things, having already nailed them to the cross, none of those things will bring you any shame. For no one who waits on God will be put to shame. No one who trusts in him will be put to shame. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. So the prophet is saying there, listen, 
God's my deliverer. God's my savior. I'm going to look away from me. I'm going to fix my face like flint, like a rock. I'm going to look steadily at God. And as I look at God and hope in him and trust in him, I am not going to be disgraced. I am not going to be put to shame. That's the promise made to each and every one of us. Those who look to him will not be put to shame. Instead of shame, those who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, notice verse 7, we receive honor. So the honor is for you who believe. Obviously, the culture of the Middle East is an honor-shame culture. Peter's day. In that society, honor would have been more valuable than money. It would have been the, 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 the best currency. And, and honor was something that not just an individual got, but the family shared in that currency, in that honor. And, and shame would be, to bring shame on yourself and on the family would be the worst thing you could do. And so life was lived to sort of gain honor, right? To accrue honor and to avoid shame, right? And, and, and here's the thing. That, that honor could be so powerful, it could fix problems in life. Right. So just a, a silly little example. You, you're, in, you're in the United Arab Emirates. You're in Dubai. You're driving down Sheikh Zayed Highway. You're speeding. If, if you know, there's like no speeding on Sheikh Zayed Highway. I mean, folks be like 100 miles, they be zooming, right? But let's, let's imagine you got pulled over, you were speeding. And the officer comes to your car and says license and registration and begins the process of checking you out. If you had no honor, then chances are you're going to get treated like all the rest of us. You're going to get the ticket or be carted off to jail or whatever. But if you had the right name, the right family name, you might not even present your license. You, you might say, you know, I'm Sheikh Zayed Ibn Thabidi, right? And everybody knows who Ibn Thabidi is because of the honor that attaches to that name and in that family. You would be released to drive off now at 130 miles an hour, right? And the officer would be left trembling that they have messed with this person whose family has such honor. That's right? how honor culture works, right? Now, when Peter says here that you have honor, in an honor culture, the way you get honor is by doing extraordinary deeds or being born in the right family, right? It's a matter of works, right? But Peter says here now, you have honor, but the honor that we have, beloved, is not based on what we do. It's based on who we believe in. Because we have believed in the Son of God, God has decided we will share in that honor. The honor culture of the gospel is not the applause of men, but it's the applause of heaven. We are honored because of who we believe in. John 12, verse 26, Jesus says this, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Can you imagine being honored by the God of the universe? having honor with him, having esteem and respect, being valued and loved with God. 
Psalm 91, verses 14 to 16, because he holds fast to me in love, this is God speaking, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Think about it. What will it be like to be honored with Jesus in heaven? Revelation 3, 21. The one who conquers, that is the one who continues in faith. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, the, the only way the, the honor can be pictured is that we are sharing in the majesty and the rule with Christ on his throne. Be honored that way by God. That's almost unbelievable. Not because of things we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us and because we have accepted him and trusted him. What do we do with this? Three quick applications. Number one, seek honor not only for God with your life, but seek honor from God by trusting and following Jesus. If you're a Christian, and you're following Jesus by faith, you are on the path of honor. Don't depart to shame. Number two, do not let the honor of man keep you from the honor of God. Don't let the applause of men distract you because you can hear it now from the applause of heaven, which you will hear later and forever. Don't let the applause of men distract you from the honor of God. And number three, beloved, let us look forward to the day when we shall see Jesus and sit with Jesus on his throne in glory. That's the promise. That's the promise. Look forward to that coming day when we shall see Jesus and be honored together with him on God's throne. When life stinks and it's ratchet and we suffer and we're confused and we are lonely and we face all the things, look beyond this life to the life to come when you shall be honored with Christ your Savior. Which brings us to our final point, the problem of disobedience. We see it there at the end of verse 8. Not everyone believes in Jesus. For some people, Jesus is a rock of stumbling. No matter how many of you have tripped on a rock before, you, you're walking down the sidewalk, perfectly level sidewalk, and uh, the sidewalk just reaches up and grabs your foot, right? And you trip and you stumble a little bit, right? That's the word picture that Peter gives. We're stumbling, and stumbling is often a, a picture that the Bible uses when it's describing people who are, who are, who are really drunk with God's judgment. Notice what he says there. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. Now, Peter told us in chapter 1, verse 25, the very last thing he told us, that the word is, in fact, the good news that was preached to you. They stumble because they have disobeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They disobeyed the call to repent and to believe. That's how they stumble. Did you know, beloved, that your belief can affect your feet? Spiritually speaking, what we believe demonstrates how we walk. 
But it's more serious than a trip and a stumble. Notice, those who reject Jesus are offended by Jesus. Verse 8 refers to a rock of offense. People, as we said before, don't like being told what to believe. They don't like being told that Jesus is the only way. They don't like being told that sin is sin and they shouldn't do it. People like to go their own way, which is the Bible's definition of sin. And they get offended when called to the straight path and the narrow path. So instead of honor in heaven, they receive shame in hell. Peter explains that the people who disobeyed the gospel were destined to do so. You see that last phrase there at verse 8? The scripture predicted it. The Lord destined it. And here's the thing to understand, beloved. Everything that happens in life takes place under God's sovereign will and control. Even the unbelief of sinners is destined by God. Sometimes now, that's a hard teaching, a hard thing to hear. And sometimes people, you know, you feel that and you go, I don't really like to think of God that way. I mean, I get it. Sometimes people present things as if God made salvation possible, but he didn't make it actual. The people who take that view are often trying to protect God's honor and find a way to blame the sinner rather than blame God. They, they read this verse and it sounds like God is blameworthy because he destined someone to judgment. I, I get it. I mean, we, we do want to present God in, in, in beautiful ways. I get it. But two things should, should be noted here as we look at this final verse and we conclude. We have to ask ourselves if we take seriously the fact that humanity is not neutral but already hates and rejects Jesus. So so before we blame God for for taking action in his eternal counsel to condemn, have we considered the fact that in point of fact, people were already rebelling against him and hating him and rejecting him. That his judgment here is just. Remember, men love darkness rather than the light. Number two, well, if we have a view of God where God made salvation possible, then kind of stood back and let things kind of play out the way they would, what do you do with a verse like verse 8 when you read your Bibles? And have you considered how far God's sovereignty goes? Right? If he's not sovereign over all, then he's not sovereign at all. If anything escapes his control and God is powerless in the face of it, well, it's a wrap. It's it's over. Have you considered that? That it may be that you have a, a vision of God, a view of God that makes him a little bit more palatable to you, but ultimately makes him impotent as God. Let God be God and every man a liar. Let God tell us the truth of his word. Let us accept it as true. And then let us sort of work through the acceptance of it. And here what we're being told is not only is God sovereign over the sun and the moon and the stars, not only is he sovereign over human events, he's sovereign over the soul. He's sovereign over salvation as well. He's sovereign over all things. And all things are working according to his plan. Now, maybe you think that's not a good note. I don't know how that's good news. Let me put it this way. Verse 8 gives us confidence that some people will be saved. Instead of worrying about 
those who wouldn't be saved, see the beauty of the fact that God has not only desired to save and decided to save, but actually does save. That there is a way of escape from judgment. There is a way of escape from hell. There is a way of escape from our sins, and that's through faith in His Son, whom He gave to pay the penalty for our sins and gave to provide the righteousness that we need. There is a definite way, a clear way, a cross-shaped way to escape the judgment of God upon the world. It's the only way that God has ordained, and that is that we would confess our sins, repent of it, believe in Jesus, obey the gospel, and live. And because God is sovereign, he can make a promise like this. Everyone who believes or calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. You see, his, his sovereignty in destining some to condemnation is the same sovereignty that makes, it, makes salvation an actuality for those of us who would believe. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. Let me, let, me, let me caution you that this book is written to Christians, right? So you're, you're reading sort of eavesdropping on a conversation between Christians and their God, and you could look at something like verse 8 and say, well, if that's what God is like now, I don't even... This, this, wasn't, this is a family secret. This, this bit of data wasn't really the bit of data you needed to respond to. The bit that's for you is that God loves you, and God gave his son for you, and his son has taken away all the sins of the world and, and suffered God's judgment in your place, and his son has provided righteousness that is perfect and unchanging, and that's for you if you would believe in his son and trust him as your savior. Don't get so distracted on one phrase in one verse that you miss the glorious gospel and reject the Lord who loves you. These folks perish because they disobeyed the truth. Don't let that be said of you. Don't let that be said of you. The mystery of sovereignty and all those things make for wonderful books read by theological eggheads. But the beauty and the glory of, of salvation is for everyone who would believe. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and live. That's all you need worry about. It's putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and living. The rest he'll explain as you come to him and follow him. And even if he doesn't explain it, he'll still be beautiful to you and worth it. Beloved, we are priests of God called to make sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're the shining stars at the dinner party. We don't need to be in corners, people watching. We need to be in the middle of the room, humbly, telling everyone there about Jesus. I know a man who died for me and died for you so that you and I both could be brand new in his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for Jesus, your son, and we thank you for who you have made us to be in him. You've made each and every one of us priests. 
making spiritual sacrifices in your temple. You gave each and every one of us profound purpose and identity. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us more and more to live out of that identity and to live into our purpose. We want to glorify you with our lives, O oh Lord. We want to glorify you as a church. We pray, give us grace to do so. Day by day, moment by moment, give us grace to do so. Help us to hold fast to your gospel. Help us to hold fast to Jesus. And, 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 and bless our grip that we would never let go. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.